It's, uh, it's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, go with me to 1 Kings 19. We'll be in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 here in just a second. Let me just say uh, thank you to Pastor Allen for the gracious invitation to be here. And I'm just grateful for all the ways that God is using him and his leadership and the staff here and just all the incredible things I hear that are happening at First Baptist Naples. Every time I come, I brought my family with me this week. You guys make us feel right at home. And so I'm thankful for you and to be able to open God's word with you this morning. We'll be in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 uh, in just a few minutes. But as we've been talking about this morning, school starts back for most folks in the next week. And there's something I want to just dive into with you this morning that I've been very burdened about and that's on my heart. I also work at a school. I work at Christian uh, a university called Carson Newman in East Tennessee. And it's something that um, I'm seeing among our students and among my own children and, and something I'm concerned about. And you'll see a, a graphic on the screen. Uh, they've been tracking over the last 30 years from 1990 to 2020. This is before the pandemic. They're tracking depression statistics and symptoms among eight through 12th graders, okay? And you see on that chart, basically over the span of about 30 years, uh, those numbers have almost doubled uh, on these kinds of statements. Teenagers saying, I can't do anything right, my life is not useful, and I do not enjoy life. And those, uh, those questions or those statements have doubled among teenagers uh, over the last 30 years, okay? Now, combine that with COVID, and you'll see uh, the next chart that since COVID, you may not be able to see it real well, but since COVID, there's been a 50% rise in mental health visits to the emergency room in the United States of America. So 50% rise since COVID, people going to the ER because they're having some kind of uh, of mental health crisis. Now, I, so I'm, I'm burdened about our young people and what they're experiencing. Uh, it's also true for adults. So there was a survey done last year in Florida that found about one in three uh, adults in Florida are experiencing some type of depressive uh, anxiety-induced reduced, uh, symptoms. Okay, so Florida, that I mean, this state, everybody's flocking here from all over the country, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. It's got everything you could ever want. And about one in three adults here who, I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us in this room, we certainly have more than the vast majority of people in the world. And most of us have most of the things that at some point in our life we said we wanted. And yet many of us are still incredibly miserable. Now, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for that. It could be some kind of painful life experience that you've gone through, some kind of loss, and it hurts, and it's just difficult to get past it. It could be exhaustion that you're experiencing. If you're burning the candle at both ends, you're a prime candidate for depression and despair. It could be disappointment that just life hasn't turned out the way you want it, right? My marriage isn't the way I want it to be. My kids aren't the way I want them to be. I don't really love my job. Um, my finances aren't where they want to be. I, you know, my health maybe not where I want it to be. Just some kind of expectation that you have. You've not met that expectation, so you're disappointed, and so it leads to despair. It could be that you're lonely. It could be that you have repressed anger that you've never dealt with, maybe towards a parent, uh, maybe towards an ex-spouse, maybe towards a boss or somebody, and you've not dealt with that, and so you're hurting as a result. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe um, you've engaged in sinful decisions that you've made or sinful behavior that's causing brokenness in your life. 
Um, it could, could be addiction, all kinds of things. But, but this is really a crisis that is infecting uh, and affecting our entire country, our communities, our homes, and we need to be able to wrestle with it. Now, as we, as we try to wrestle with it, want to make a couple of caveats up front. We need to, first of all, distinguish between sadness and depression, okay? Oftentimes, I think we will say things like, I'm depressed, and what we really mean is, I'm sad, okay? We're, we're sad because of any of those things I mentioned before, but, but sadness and depression aren't exactly the same thing. Depression is an illness that involves the body, uh, the mind, the mood, your emotions. It, it is associated with thoughts uh, and feelings that affect your eating habits, that affect your sleeping habits, that cause you to feel worthless and to feel gloomy all the time. That it causes you to withdraw from normal activities that you would go through. Like that, there's, a, there's an actual illness, depression, that's associated with all of those things. And, and, and depression is, is a prolonged sadness over the course of a, of a, a long period of time that really you can't back up with an objective like reason. It's just, there's no objective reason why you're experiencing this, it's just what you're experiencing, okay? And so we need to distinguish between just sadness and depression. The other thing that we need to be able to say up front is, and I hope the message will destigmatize this. If you're struggling with this, doesn't mean you're a bad Christian, doesn't mean you're a bad person. Uh, we all have periods of our life where we struggle with these kinds of things. If that's you, you, you really should consider reaching out for some help, talking to a counselor, talking to a doctor, okay? There's no shame in doing that. Uh, people can really benefit from getting intervention from the outside, okay? And let me be clear up front. While people do call me Dr. Aiken, I'm not that kind of doctor, all right? I just wanna be clear about that. Um, when, I, when I was the interim pastor here several years ago and I had brought my family with me, they uh, kept saying from the stage, you know, we're excited Dr. Aiken and his family are here. Dr. Aiken's gonna be preaching this morning. And my son, Judd, looked at my wife, Ashley. He's like seven at the time. And he's like, why do they keep calling dad Dr. Aiken? He's no doctor. And uh, she's like, well, I mean, he is a doctor. And he's like, no, he's not. And she said, well, he is a doctor. He's just not the kind that helps people. And um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't, she didn't say that. But... I'm not that kind of doctor. So I just want us to recognize that this issue is multifaceted and it's not, I'm not gonna just stand up here and say, man, if you just had enough faith, everything would be okay. That's not true, all right? So it's not gonna be just like, take these three Bible verses and call me in the morning. This, is, this requires multiple strategies to try to, to fight for uh, mental health, okay? And, and the problem is that oftentimes Christians or counselors or doctors will try to take something that's multifaceted and then sometimes reduce it and, and minimize it based on what their bent is or based on what their discipline is. So pastors oftentimes, especially in the past, would only wanna deal with this at the spiritual level and would ignore cognitive issues or, or emotional issues, psychological issues or physical issues. So pastors in the past would be very reticent to say, well, maybe you should, you should get some medicine. Maybe you should talk to a doctor, okay? Because they would reduce it just to the spiritual. Doctors oftentimes can just treat things at the level of the symptom and they're dealing with, they, they take medicine, but, but not dealing with things at the level of the spiritual, not dealing with things at the level of the physical and the psychological. Counselors can deal with psychological issues, but maybe not think about spiritual issues. And oftentimes we reduce 
introduce this, and it's a, there's a, we need a multifaceted approach. It's a very complex issue, and the Bible tells us that we are whole beings and that the whole of our being is infected by the fall of sin and by the brokenness that surround us. It's not just in terms of our spiritual life. It's our spirit. It's our mind. It's our body. It's our emotions. We're all affected by sin and by brokenness, and so we can go through periods of our life where we feel down and where we feel despair and we need a multifaceted approach to dealing with this. Now, I say all that and I recognize that the mental health conversation is shifting and there's a lot of emphasis that's been placed on the last couple of years, but that makes it a very difficult cultural moment when you try to deal with these issues because what we're seeing, and I really saw this crystallized for me in the last Summer Olympics, when Simone Biles um, stepped out of some of the events that she was going to participate in because she was taking care of her mental health and, and was nervous about what would happen to her if she competed. And then people had all these takes about whether she should do it or not. And that's not, I'm not interested in that. I'm not, you know, I'm not a gymnastics expert. Even It may look like I am, but I'm not, okay. <laughs> but what was interesting was the way people took what happened with Simone Biles and juxtaposed it with what happened with Carrie Strug 25 years earlier. So 25 years, I think it was the 96 Olympics, Carrie Strug was injured, went on and vaulted anyways. The U.S. won the gold uh, as a team. And so people were putting these two events together and people were saying all kinds of things like Simone Biles let her team down. That was ridiculous. Other people were saying, man, good for her taking her mental health seriously and taking care of herself. Others are looking back and saying she should be more like Carrie Strug. She was a hero. She sacrificed herself for her team. Other people were looking back and saying it was ridiculous that her coaches let her vault when she was injured. And people were just piling on, piling on. And I say all that to say this. We're in a difficult moment here in our country if we're, as we try to balance taking mental health seriously, which we should do, while at the same time not creating mentally weak people. And that's, that's really a difficult balance, but it's something we've got, to, we've got to be able to walk. We've got to be able to have the conversation and say, yeah, there's some ways in the past that we you know, just tough it out or whatever that wasn't helpful. But the Bible also says you've got to take thoughts captive that you need to doubt some of the thoughts that come into your brain and that you need to de develop mental toughness. The psalmist talks to himself this way in Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Question yourself. Question the way you're feeling. The psalmist does that. We've got to be able to take thoughts captive. And so let's, let's look here this morning. We're going to try to learn Biblical strategies for fighting for mental wellness. Not just making excuses and saying, well, this is who I am, and so I, I need to numb the pain or have these experiences to kind of get through the day or whatever. How can we fight for this? And we're gonna see in the story of Elijah here in 1 Kings 19, this, these multiple strategies that God is going to give us to fight for our mental health. And, and one of the reasons why this is, should be so encouraging is because Elijah was a giant of the faith, and yet he experienced suicidal thoughts and he wanted to die at some point in his life. And so this was a man of great faith. It wasn't like he was a bad Christian, didn't have enough faith. He was a man of incredible faith. This is, this is a man who, Elijah was the first person in human existence to raise somebody from the dead, as far as we know, as far as the Bible records. He was the first person ever to raise somebody from the dead. 
He prayed and it didn't rain for three years. He prayed again and it rained. In 1 Kings 18, he has what really is probably the high point of his ministry when the people of Israel are worshiping false gods called the Baals. They're trying to kill Elijah and all the prophets that are worshiping the one true God. And so Elijah summons all the people, all the false prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. And he says, we're gonna have a showdown. You call out to your God. I'm gonna call out to my God. Whichever God answers with fire from heaven, he's the real God. And so they do it. The prophets of Baal pray for six hours. There's no answer. Elijah prays. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice that Elijah had set up. The people have this, what looks like potentially a shift of heart, and they start exclaiming, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then Elijah rounds up all the prophets of Baal and, and slaughters them, okay? So it looks like, man, finally, Revival is taking place in Israel, and within 24 hours, he's so depressed that he's suicidal. So I want us to look at this story and see what strategies the Bible gives us uh, for my, fighting for our mental health. Let's look here, 1 Kings 19. We're going to read starting in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 8 to prepare for our study. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. This is what God's Word says. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Four strategies that I want us to see this morning in the story about Elijah. The first is this, that you need to practice self-care. You need to practice self-care. So again, the story as we're, uh, as we're seeing it unfold, Elijah has this mountaintop experience at Mount Carmel. Uh, Ahab runs to his wife Jezebel and he tattles on Elijah, says, here's what Elijah did. So Jezebel puts a hit out on Elijah and says, 24 hours, my assassins are gonna track you down. They're going to kill you. And Elijah runs away, hides under a tree and asks God to kill him. That's what we see in the story. And it's, and it's really quite shocking because when Elijah was facing the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, Again, all the people were against him. 450 prophets of Baal were against him. The government was against him. He was in enemy territory and all alone, it seemed like. And he was bold, so bold that when the prophets of Baal were praying to their God, asking for fire from heaven, and he wasn't answering, Elijah started talking trash to them and saying, maybe you need to call louder. He's probably using the bathroom. And so you're expecting here when, when Jezebel says, hey, 24 hours, you're going to be dead, that he's going to respond, you and what army? 
But instead, he runs away, and the text tells us he's afraid. Now, let me be clear. He's not afraid of death. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for him to be scared of Jezebel killing him and then to run into Judah and then ask God to kill him. Okay, so he's not afraid of death. What he's afraid of is failure. He's like, enough is enough, okay? It's time to give up. I've given everything, I've given everything I have to this mission that God has given me and it's not made one whit of difference. And so I'm just, I'm out. I, 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 can't, I can't go on anymore. It's very much like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, it came out years ago, but the first Rocky movie, when Rocky's like this underdog who's given a chance to fight Apollo Creed, who's the champion, who's never lost, never, uh, he's knocked out everybody that he's faced. And Rocky's like, I just wanna go the distance. And so Rocky goes in this fight and it's brutal. He does a little bit better than people are expecting or a lot better than people are expecting, but he's just getting beat up. And then finally in the 14th round, Apollo Creed hits him with an uppercut Rocky goes down, his legs are gone, they're jello, so he can't get himself to his feet. He's trying to grab the ropes to pull himself up. Even his manager is begging him, stay down, stay down. And Rocky eventually grabs the ropes and pulls himself up. Apollo Creed's in the corner with his hands raised, celebrating, I finally knocked him out. He turns around and he sees Rocky on his feet and Rocky is just like waving him on. All right, come on, bring, you know, bring me some more. And and Creed just drops his, his, his shoulders slump, his head drops, and he's just like, I, I've given this guy everything I've got and I've not been able to knock him out. And that's, that's what Elijah's experiencing. He's like, I've done all of this. It looked like we had this big revival and yet people are still worshiping Baal. Jezebel's still in control. Idolatry's still public policy in Israel. I, I'm no better than anybody who's come before me, he says. I, all the, my forefathers failed to change Israel. I've failed to change Israel. And so I'm out. I want you to kill me. And so he lays down and he sleeps. And then an angel comes, graciously wakes him up, feeds him food. He takes another nap. They repeat the process. And then he goes on a, a trip, 40 days and 40 nights, without food to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel gathered after they came out of slavery in Egypt. But what happens here in this story is, again, very instructive for us. Oftentimes, the best thing for you to do when you are depressed, when you are despairing, when you are sad, is just to practice self-care. It's to take a nap, eat, drink, get some exercise. You just need to take care of yourself physically because the physical realities do affect your mental, emotional, and spiritual realities. It's just the case, okay? Many pastors have said this before. Sometimes the godliest thing that you can do is take a nap. Not pray, not read your Bible, you know, just take a nap and take care of yourself. Okay, that's, that's a good thing for you to do. You need to balance self-care. So get outside, take a walk, get some rest, eat, drink, spend time with friends. Those are good things to do. Now, you need to do this in a balanced way, okay? So when I, when I talk about getting sleep, you need to get the right amount of sleep, and that means not too much and not too little. When people are depressed, when people are down and despairing, they run to two extremes. Either they sleep all the time or they have a hard time sleeping at all. When I talk about eating, you need to have a good diet, which means don't eat too much, don't eat too little. When people are struggling with despair, they can either overindulge or they can hardly eat anything at all. In fact, uh, the diagnostic manuals on mental health will tell you that some of the key signs that you are struggling with depression 
are that your appetite and your sleep patterns are affected. Okay, so that's you. If your appetite, you, you are overindulging or you're not eating enough, you're oversleeping, you're not sleeping enough, that could be a sign to you that you need to reach out to somebody and get some help, okay? Because those physical realities do affect your mental and spiritual well-being. And the problem is that many people, especially Christians, for whatever reason, ignore that sometimes. It's just like, well, if you just pray enough or you just you know, read your Bible enough, everything's gonna be okay. But no, physical exhaustion, physical uh, you know, malnourishment, physical just, just stress on your body, it, it has an effect on your mental state. It has an effect on your spiritual state. And you know this, right? Like, you know that when you're tired and when you're hangry, probably not the best time to have a real important discussion with your spouse, right? Like, hey, let's, let's, let's get something to eat. Let's go to bed. Let's talk in the morning, right? It's not a good time to make like real important life decisions when you're hungry, when you're tired, and when you're irritable. It's just not a good idea because it's, it's gonna affect the way that you analyze things. It's gonna cause you to blow things out of proportion, which is the second thing that we see uh, in this story with Elijah is that we need to not catastrophize. Don't catastrophize, you're not alone. Listen to what the Bible says there in verse nine. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah meets with God here and he catastrophizes. Now, if you've never heard that word, it's a word that therapists use to describe the way that people, when they analyze a situation, see it as the worst case possible. Okay, so it's, it's blowing things out of proportion. It's acting like things are just as bad as they could possibly be and not actually seeing reality. Because Elijah here is saying things that are not true. Okay, he's exaggerating. These things are not true. Like when he says, they want to kill me, that's not true. They don't wanna kill him. There's one person who wants to kill him. It's Jezebel. And as far as we know, I've read the Bible. I, it doesn't tell us that they is one of her pronouns. And so this is, a, this is her. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible, I'm just trying to be clear about what the Bible says. This is, this is her, not them, okay? So she's, she's the only one trying to kill him. The other thing he says is, I'm all alone. I'm, I'm, just, I'm in this all by myself. Well, 24 hours earlier, before the showdown at Mount Carmel, Obadiah told Elijah that he had hidden 100 prophets in a cave so that Ahab and Jezebel couldn't kill them and he was sneaking water and food to them. So he at least knows, knows there's 100 other guys out there just like him. God's gonna tell him at the end of this passage that there's 7,000 people in Israel who are like him that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he's like, you're, you're not alone. They're not coming after you, but he's blowing all of this out of proportion because in his despair, he cannot see reality right. And that happens to us when we are down. We see things as way more dire than they actually are. Okay, go to worst case scenario. We say, we say things like always and never, right? Think about your marriage. If, if you're in a hard time, you, you catastrophize. And so it's like, well, my wife always does this or my husband never does that. Or my children always do this or my children never do that. Or my boss always does this or my boss never does that. And we just blow things out of proportion. And we say things like, I have the worst luck in the world. 
or I just can't catch a break. And the truth is, if you, if you were to step back and just look at things objectively, you know that you don't have the worst luck in the world, right? That you're not just as bad off as, as anybody in the world. But we're, we're not able to see that in our hurt. We're not able to see that in our brokenness. It's, it's oftentimes good for me. Uh, this is kind of a, a, you know, a, a funny way to think of these things, but it's, it's helpful to me sometimes when I see these tweets uh, and these posts on social media that, that are like, if you're having a bad day, just remember. And then they put things in there like, like how it could always be worse. And so I saw one uh, a little while ago that said, if you think you're having a bad day, just remember that in 1976, Ronald Wayne sold his 10% Apple stock for $800. It's worth $77 billion today. So could be worse. So one that said, if, you, if you're having a bad day, just remember there are people out there who have their ex's name tattooed on their body, okay? So, so could be, yeah, could be worse. But it, all that to say, like, we've got to be able to take thoughts captive. We've got to be able to doubt our catastrophic thoughts and to try to reorient our minds and to try to at least do the best we can to, to, to recognize that oftentimes it is true that our subjective experience of reality doesn't match with objective reality. And it certainly doesn't match with the truth of God's word. And so we've got to reorient our thinking. Like one of the things that the Bible tells us to do is to, is to learn to count your blessings. I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's a really good exercise to do. Like I, I do this um, from time to time in my own life. I have a journal, I write it down, but if you don't journal, like start a memo on your phone or whatever, you know, whatever you need to do, but just begin to think through, to really pray and to think through and to list out all the things that God has blessed you with, okay? If you're in a relationship, you're, you're, you're married, you have a family, you have a house, you have air conditioning, you have warm water, you have a car, you have friends, you go to school, you have hobbies that you enjoy, you've got American football, you've got, you know, there's lots of great things. Um, you've, I mean, all of these different, you've got your health, you've got a job, you're able to provide for your family, like all these things, you, you, we often take them for granted, we start to, but just list them out, like these are blessings that God has given you. And then spiritual blessings, right? If you are a believer in Christ, then there are things that are true about you, whether or not you feel them in the moment. And those things that are true about you, there's no condemnation for you in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been adopted in the family of God. You get to call God Father. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside you. you God's holding nothing against you. You're gonna go to heaven when you die, right? Like he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. All these things are, are true. They're blessings. And we need to be able to take our eyes off of our catastrophic experiences that we think that we're having and put our eyes on what God is doing in our lives. And we need to be reminded of these things, right? Elijah deep down knows that he's not alone. There's, there's at least a hundred that he knows out there like him, but he isolates away. You don't, don't need to isolate when you're down. That's often a very deadly choice for people to withdraw from other people. No, God says there's a there's hundred, there's 7,000 like you, and you need this community of faith to love you and to care for you and to help you bear your burdens. These are important reminders, right? When you're going through something, oftentimes you begin to think like, Elijah, I'm the only one going through this, but God says, no, you're not strange. You're not unusual. You're not alone. Other people are going through exactly what you're going through, and you have people around you who love you and pray for you and want to serve you, and you need to be reminded of that. And so when we catastrophize, we take our eyes off God and we put our eyes on our circumstances, but instead we need to put our eyes on God. And that's the next strategy we see here is the text tells us that we need to meet 
with God. Look what the verse says there in, in verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah travels to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Again, this is the place where Moses and the people of God met with God after they had come out of slavery in Egypt. And in fact, Elijah, if you read this in the Hebrew, Elijah is here in the very place, the cleft of the rock, where God had put Moses when God revealed his glory to Moses all the way back in the Exodus. And so he's in the very same spot as Moses, where Moses met with God, where the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai. But if you, if you read back in the book of Exodus, when God shows up at Mount Sinai, how does he show up? He shows up as an earthquake. He shows up as a fire. He shows up as a storm and wind and all these incredibly powerful phenomena. That's the way that God showed up at Mount Sinai. But here he meets with Elijah, not in all of those things, but he meets with Elijah through a whisper, through word, through communication. And this is instructive because what the Bible teaches us here, and this is a theme throughout the entire Bible, is that God is most closely associated with his word. That's how he meets with you. He's given you the Bible and that's how he meets with you. We see this like, this is an amazing statement. In 1 Samuel 3, the prophet Samuel, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 3 that the Lord appeared to Samuel at Shiloh. So you, you're thinking, okay, so there was some kind of visible manifestation of God's presence where Samuel was able to look and see God with his eyes. But what does the text say? It says the Lord appeared to Samuel at Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. That's how he showed up. He showed up by talking to Samuel. We see this in, in, the, in the New Testament, Luke 16. When Jesus is telling this story about a rich man who's gone to hell and he's having a conversation up in heaven with Father Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers and I don't want them to come here. So send, if, if Lazarus goes to them, if he's raised from the dead and goes and talks to them, they'll repent and then they'll not come to hell and they'll go to heaven. And do you guys remember what Father Abraham says to the rich man? He says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They've got the Bible. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if a man goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not repent, even if someone goes to them from the dead. And we're living right now in a modern American Christianity where we want God to show up in the powerful phenomena, and we are ignoring the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in the Bible. Right. And we see this in the way that, that we have taken a really poor translation of this passage in the King James, the still small voice. And we've talked to people for years about listening to the still small voice of God inside of you. And what we've done is we act like, we do this is a really weird thing, where we act like the, the voice of God to you outside the Bible is somehow better than the voice of God in the Bible. And can I just tell you, goosebumps and what you think God might be saying to you is not better than what he's actually said to you in the Bible. And so you need to read it. You need to meet with God by reading 
the Bible because the Bible can help you reorient your experience and see the truth of where things are. His words are truer than your thoughts. You need to read these, you need to preach them to yourself so that your heart can gain comfort. Listen to some of the things that the, the psalmist says in the Psalms that bring you comfort when you are down. Psalm three, verses three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. When you can't even lift your head up, pray and God will lift up your head. Psalm 23, four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Listen to this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you hurting? Are you brokenhearted? God is near you. He's gonna hear you. Psalm 84, 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Your God is for you. If you will hold on to him, he will not withhold anything good from your life. You need to preach that to yourself. You need to fight to believe it. Because here's the deal. I, I would love to believe. I would love to believe that years from now, you might remember some of my sermons. I know Pastor Allen would love to believe that years from now, you might remember some of his sermons. But the most important sermons that you will ever preach to yourself are, 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 excuse me, the most important sermons you'll ever hear are the ones you preach to yourself. You've gotta take the Bible, you've gotta read it, and you've gotta say to yourself, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to, help me to see that this is true, even when my circumstances are fighting and raging against me to believe it. And if you can't, again, if you can't get nourishment from reading the Bible, then that may be a sign that you need to, to reach out to somebody, get some intervention from the outside and talk to somebody. One of my counselor friends told me, he said, if you can't read the Bible and get comfort and nourishment from the Bible, then you're like a spiritual diabetic. So a physical diabetic can't, can't process the nutrients that they put in their body in a way that brings health to their body. And, it, and if that's true about you in terms of not being able to read, the, the Bible should be spiritual nutrients that go into your soul and bring health to your soul. And if they're not doing that, then you need to, you need to reach out and talk to somebody and let them help you. And that leads to the last strategy that we see here, which is we need to embrace the gospel. We need to embrace the gospel. Look what the Bible says there, starting in verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Maloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. 
God ends this story. They have a repeat of their earlier conversation. And then God ends by graciously communicating to Elijah his plan to rid Israel of idolatry and to set things right in Israel, which is Hazael in Syria and Jehu in Israel and Elisha as the new prophet. So God, despite Elijah's despair, God doesn't leave him in his despair. He comes after him the same way God comes after you in your despair. And he graciously communicates to him and he graciously says to him, hey, it's not always gonna be like this. I've got a plan. I'm gonna set things right. I'm gonna end the brokenness. I'm gonna make the sad things come untrue. I'm gonna save my people. I have a plan to set things right. And Elijah ultimately points us to Jesus and God's plan to set things right in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Like Elijah, Jesus raises the dead. Like Elijah, Jesus goes 40 days and 40 nights without food. Like Elijah, Jesus' miracles made his enemies more determined to kill him, not less determined to kill him. Like Elijah, Jesus experiences ministry disappointment as he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. But unlike Elijah, Jesus dies and is raised from the dead before he ascends into heaven so that he can turn back sadness once and for all. And Jesus goes to another mount. He goes to Calvary where he doesn't meet with God. He's forsaken by God so that you and I can be accepted by God so that he can make the sad things come untrue. So what the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, when, when we're given that prophecy of the cross, it tells us that Jesus on the cross doesn't just take our sin on himself, although he does, but it says he is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He takes our sadness, he takes our despair, he takes our depression on himself at the cross so that he can do away with it and one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so the gospel tells you and the gospel tells me, no matter what you're experiencing, God loves you, God is for you, he's not against you, and he doesn't want to withhold anything good in your life. So often people who are experiencing depression think the depressed me is the real me. This is who I really am. What people are telling me is not true. What people are saying to me, they're trying to get me to believe that's not true. The, the depressed me is the real me. And because of that, so many people who are depressed think I'm not lovable and I'm especially not lovable by God. But God says in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, no, you're lovable, I love you. I love you so much I sent my son to die for you. I'm for you, I'm with you. I'm never gonna leave you, I'm never gonna forsake you. And so just in the way we started, let me just say this, if you're struggling today, here's what the gospel says to you. The gospel says to you that you can enjoy life, that you are useful to God, and that he thinks you can do things right. And so hold on to Jesus, and please, please do not give up. Jesus loves you. This church loves you. We stand ready to help you. Hold on to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray that we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship the Lord and then we're gonna uh, have a time of experiencing the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for every single person in this room. I pray, Lord, 
for every person who's experiencing despair, sadness, depression right now, Lord, I pray that they would avail themselves of all these things that you've laid out in your word. You are the God who is redeeming all, not just spiritual, you're redeeming spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological, all of our well-being, our spirit, mind, soul, body. So Father, those who are struggling right now, would they avail themselves of taking care of themselves physically the best they can? Would they take their thoughts captive and not catastrophize? Father, would they meet with you in your word and gain nourishment? And would they embrace the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? That he's gonna turn back the clock and make the sad things come untrue. He's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. So Father, I pray if there's anybody here who's never embraced the gospel, they've never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would not leave here today without talking to somebody and giving their life over to Jesus Christ. If there's people here, Lord, who they've trusted Christ, but they've never made that public in baptism, they've never shown their identity in Christ through baptism, I pray that they would get baptized. Father, I pray if they're not a member of a church, they would join this church where they would be surrounded by a faith family who wants to help bear their burdens, pray for them and love them and serve them. So Father, whatever decision needs to be made today, whether it's believing in Jesus for the first time or for those who are believers, if they've just got to fight to believe and say, Lord, help my unbelief, if they've got to fight to take thoughts captive, if they've got to fight to take care of themselves better than they are right now, Lord, whatever it is, I pray that people would leave here encouraged because in Jesus Christ, we are told, you are lovable, you are desired, you are accepted, and you are part of the family of God. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.